All right, so Genesis chapter 38 is where we're at, and uh, and this story, kind of where we're at, it kind of shifts gears a little bit. We went, we go from talking about Joseph to a story about Judah, and then we're going to kind of go back to Joseph again. And this story, again, this is something that might seem very random, but let me tell you, everything that is in here is in here for a very good reason. This is very important stuff, and there is a fantastic spiritual message that we get from really a pretty bad story here. This, and so a lot of good stuff we want to try to cover in here. So first off, verse 1 says, And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. So what is that time that it's referring to? Well, I personally believe it's referring to the time while they were dwelling in Canaan, because where they were in all these stories are very important. These things are very detailed. And in chapter 37, it says, And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And it was during the, in that story, during that time, when uh, Joseph's brethren sold him. And so also, during that time, when they were living in Canaan, all of this takes place with Judah. And so in verse 2, it says, And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, because they're in the land of Canaan, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bare a son, and called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son, and called his name Shelah. And he was at Chezib when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. So in these just six verses here, a lot of years have passed, okay? So some of this, too, probably actually took place, you know, before this story with Joseph, okay? So, you know, he probably got married and was having kids, and then somewhere during that time, that story happens with Joseph. And so here in this story, you know, because this, this is going to cover at least a 20-year period of time because you've got Ur being born and growing up and ready for a wife. And so... Uh, in, uh, in, Je- in Genesis 41, 46, it says, And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And I point that out because Joseph was 17 when he got sold into Egypt. He was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh and he interprets the dream. And so in that dream, they were about to have seven plenteous years. And so, and then they were going to have seven bad years. Well, I believe it was two years into the famine that Joseph's brothers came. So there was a 20-year period where Joseph didn't see his brothers. So uh, obviously some of this stuff started happening before the story with Joseph. Uh, that's easy to figure out just by doing a little bit of math in here. And it's important that we realize that because not everything in Genesis is just completely chronological, okay? And this story that it's talking about here, you know, it's it's almost a separate story. It's a different story, but it was an important story because it was about Judah, and the tribe of Judah would become the most important tribe in Israel. It was the tribe of Judah that the kings were going to come from. It was the tribe of Judah where the Messiah was going to come from. And ultimately, this whole book of Genesis so far, God has been looking for a people. And it started out with Abel. And you all know the line. We've been going through it the whole time. We've been following this line. And eventually, it goes to Judah. And eventually, it goes to David. And eventually, it goes to Jesus Christ. 
And now, today, who are we focused on? We're not focused on the nation of Israel. We're not focused on the tribe. We're focused on the one who came from there, Jesus Christ. So all these, th- these stories are in here for a reason because God always knew, hey, this is the line where the Messiah is going to come through. So all these details were in there way before Jesus even came. It, it, it focused extra attention to Judah, unlike the rest of you know the tribes. And it just shows God always knew what he was going to do. So verse 7 says, And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Now, we don't know what he did. We don't know, you know what made him so wicked. He was just a bad guy, and God killed him. Because remember, God's raising up a nation here, and he doesn't want these to be just a horrible, wicked people. Otherwise, this nation's not going to make it. So God kills him. And then it says, And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Now, I want, to, I want us to pay a lot of attention to this, because this is something a lot of people scratch their head about, don't understand. And that is this, this whole concept of raising up seed to your brother. Okay? Because uh, I, I don't believe we should be doing this practice today. Okay, I don't, I don't believe we should be doing this, but this is something that they used to do, and it was something that was very important back then. But it's important that we understand why, so we don't come up with faulty conclusions. Most people, when they look at Genesis 38, this is the birth control chapter of the Bible, isn't it? Because, you know, we need, we need some scripture, right? And so this is kind of the go-to. Well, the problem is, okay, and, and listen, I don't like birth control, all right? But here's, here's the thing. If we get real, if this is our dogmatic verse we go to to prove how bad it is, well then, raising up seed to the brothers okay too, and I don't believe that that's okay. Okay, and I think it was wicked what Onan did for one to go into his brother's wife like that, and then to do what he did. That was a very wicked thing to do, and he and he. I don't believe he was wicked because he did that. I think he did that because he was wicked. I think he was like his brother. Because think about this, aren't we seeing the 12 tribes stink pretty bad? And we even see in this story, Judah wasn't that great of a guy either. He's going into Harlot like it's nothing. Okay? This was a rough crowd. These were bad people, but obviously these guys were exceptionally bad and they took the cake. But, you know, we do. We've got to answer this question. Why did they even do something like this? What was the, what was the purpose of this? Because it's something we don't get, but there's a really good reason. So first off, a few questions that come up with is, was this something that they were even supposed to be doing? Now, we don't see in Genesis where God commanded them to do this, but we do see God being angry when Onan did not do it. And we do see later in Deuteronomy chapter 25 where they actually are told, uh, they are told to have this practice. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 25 verse 5. It says, if brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, and take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. 
And if a man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of the husband's brother. Then the elders of this city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. And I love that verse. I just... Can you imagine getting that title? That's the house of him that hath the shoe loosed. I don't know. It, it, I had to have sounded better in Hebrew, but that just, I, I don't know. That I, I crack up every time I look at that verse. So here we see that practice given to them. This is something they were supposed to do. And, and But now, now let's think about this because there's a spiritual message that we're supposed to get from this. All right, so I have two sons, okay? Now, if something happened to Tommy, you know, Obviously, I'd be devastated losing him, but it would be worse, too, if he went before he even had any children, you know, because I kind of like the idea of there being a Tommy the fourth, you know, I want, I want my name to go on and I want his name to go on. Now, thankfully, I have another son. So, you know, the name will still go on even if, you know, even if he died, but I want his name to go on, too. So imagine if that happened, he died, he didn't have any children, but he had a wife. And then, you know, Jason ends up, you know, raising up seed to his brother. Now, here's the fact. If Jason did that, legally, technically, according to this law, it's Tommy's son. He could even, they could even name the child Tommy the fourth. But is it Tommy's son? No. Okay. Let's just. Admit, all right, we, we all know science here. It's not his son, okay? And so then, you know, when we go and, all right, we have a Tommy the fourth, and, you know, his father is dead now and, you know, in heaven, and, you know, the, he got everything that was his father's, but it's, he, it's not his dad, you know? We all would know that, wouldn't we? So doesn't it just kind of seem pointless? Doesn't it seem kind of meaningless? Well, to us today, it really does. But I'm going to show you at the end of the message, there's a, there's a really good spiritual application that we can get from this. But turn over to Ruth chapter 4, because here's an example in the Bible where we actually see this practice taking place. We see this being done. And again, there, there's a reason for it. <clears throat> there's a reason they did this. So it says, that, uh, and you all know the story of Ruth and Boaz. So, you know, Ruth or Boaz meets Ruth. Boaz loves her. He wants to marry her. She's a widow. But according to their customs, you know, he was not the nearest of kin. He was not the one who should be marrying her because the man that she had married died not having any children. So there's a kinsman that's nearer than Boaz is. And so they're going to go and figure out what to do. And so it says, then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by unto him, whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi that has come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, 
buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know that there is none to redeem it beside thee. And, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. So they're getting into a lot of legal technicalities here. Okay, But ultimately what we have going on here is Boaz wants Ruth. Okay, Now this other man, he kind of wants that land, but he doesn't want Ruth. And so they're making a deal here because back then too, if you got an inheritance, that was supposed to stay in your family. And, and again, if you die not having any children, there's a whole passage where it goes into all the details of, you know, who's next and who's, who's supposed to get it. So they're trying to work a deal out here because, you know, Boaz ultimately wants Ruth. So in verse six, says, and the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming, concerning changing, for to confirm all things. A man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. This was a testimony in Israel. Therefore, the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe and Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. So he's going to raise up seed for Malon is what's going on in this story with Ruth. And what's interesting about that, jump down to uh, verse um, verse 18. It says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. Ram begat Aminadab. Aminadab begat Naashon. Naashon begat Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz. Boaz begat Obed, Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. Notice it starts with Perez, which is the character that we're going to see born here in Genesis chapter 38. And it ends, and then it goes to Boaz, where he raises up seed to Malon, like Onan was supposed to do with his brother Ur in, in in this chapter right here. So we see this practice in both of them. And in the specific line of Perez that goes all the way to David. Okay? And I think it's, there's a reason, too, why we see this strange practice to us that has a spiritual meaning being done in the tribe of Judah in a very specific line. There's a reason for it. There's a reason for that. When you see stuff like this in the Bible that just kind of has you scratching your head, you know, just keep digging, keep reading. There's always a reason for it. Everything that's in the Bible is there for a reason. And there's some good stuff that we can get out of it. So... I say all that to say, this is something they were supposed to be doing. This was something that was practiced during that time. But let me ask you this, would it be a sin to practice it today? And I believe the answer is yes. I do not believe we should be practicing this today. But so here's what we need to ask, though, is why did they do it in the first place? Ultimately, what was the reason for that? And turn over to Numbers chapter 27. 
Because this is another passage, too, where we, we look at this today in our culture in 2020 America, and we say, this is weird. I don't, I don't even get why this is a big deal. We are living in a different world today, okay? Not because we're in a new dispensation. We're just a different culture, okay? We're not from Israel. We're Americans, okay? We only think we have property rights in America, we, we only think we have inheritance and we actually own anything. Okay, that's an illusion that we are under in 2020 America. So this is all foreign to us. Okay, so uh, but hopefully you'll understand this a little better. And, you know, I'm not going to take time to go through all this. I could spend a lot of time going through passages. But in Deuteronomy 27, basically, you have the daughters of Zelophehad, okay, that don't have husbands. And there's a reason. Okay, their names were, uh, one of them's name was it was Noah, boy's name, Hogla. Who wants to marry a Hogla? Okay. Milka and Terza. All right, Terza's not that bad, but uh, those names, uh, I, I just picture four ugly women when I read this passage, okay? And they don't, have any hus- they don't have any husband. But their father, he received an inheritance. Whenever they went into that land, they're dividing everything up. He received an inheritance, but he didn't have any sons. And this was a problem because they didn't want their father's name being forgotten. So what they ended up doing is they told him, hey, if, you, if whoever marries you, they will receive that as, as the inheritance. They will receive it in the name of their father, Zelophehad. You just have to marry men that are within your tribe of Manasseh. And so that's what they ended up doing. And then those men, you know, now all of a sudden they were able to get a husband because there was a good chunk of land that they could get. And so then Hogla finally got a man, you know, is basically what happened. And you see, back then, okay, back then they had a different mindset. See, as Christians today, we're always thinking about the eternal, aren't we? We're thinking about the spiritual. You know why? Because now we've been promised a better inheritance. We've received better promises. We've received spiritual things. Back then, remember, they were trying to raise up a physical nation, a physical people. God gave them a physical land, and they had an inheritance that was very, very important to them. Those inheritances, that land was divided up into 12 parts for the different tribes of Israel, and they were not supposed to go selling that land to other tribes. And if they did, it was temporary, and in the year of Jubilee, it would go back to them. Those inheritances meant everything, because if you have a mindset like that back then, that not that we're going to get raptured any time or of a spiritual inheritance, if you die leaving nothing behind, you're just forgotten, aren't you? So if you live in a time like that, where in your mind, you know, the future is thousands of years out, you want to leave a name for yourself, and so you do. You want a land. You want a town after your name. And, you know, and, and said again, one of the things that would be the most difficult for me if one of my sons died is the fact that if it was before they were married and had any kids, it's just like there's nothing left. But the thing is, at least I know I've got heaven someday. I'll be with them in heaven. We're going to rise again one of these days. You know, the spiritual things are more important. And so, you know, we'll be fine. We'll move on. But back then, that physical inheritance was much more important. It mattered a great deal. And the Bible talks a lot about it. So they did. They had a different, you know, uh, set of priorities than we do today. And those inheritances, they meant a lot. And so, just like me, if I thought, you know, if I had that mindset, if I lived back then, 
and I'm thinking there's thousands of years out there, and I've got my two boys, you know, I want, I want their names to be remembered. And so I want both my sons to have an inheritance. I want both of them to have a city and a name and a people. And, you know, while yes, it's not technically Tommy's child, but at least it's his name, his name, so he will be remembered, especially if I did, if I had a great deal of land and I decided, you know, what, I'm going to give, you know, I, let's say I own Rock Falls and Sterling. And I was like, I'm going to give Rock Falls to Tommy and I'm going to give Sterling to Jason. And that, you know, that's there, you know, that's going to be their inheritance. And it would be a way to just kind of remember them. And then I name it one Tommy and another one, Jason. Those kind of things were very important to them back then. And so when people died, they didn't want them to just be forgotten. So they had this practice and it did matter more then because they were to raise they were to raise up a physical nation and a people in their name. We're not really interested in that today, are we? That's not what we're all about. I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine. You know, as far as you know, having kids, you know, if you want to obtain wealth or whatever. But ultimately, the spiritual things are much more important. And so we're not really looking to spend a whole lot of time on that. We can go into a lot more passages and a lot more technicalities on that, but I don't want to do that. But in Psalm 16:15, David said, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. When he said the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places, he means I've, I've received a good inheritance. I've got good borders. You know, I, I've, I've been given a good land. He had a good inheritance. And people today, we use this verse all the time. I've used this verse about myself because I have a goodly heritage. However, and the lines are falling to me in pleasant places, but those lines, they're not physical lines bordering a land, but they are spiritual things that have been given to me. I do have a good spiritual heritage that I'm very thankful for. I'm glad the lines fell onto me in the Baptist world. I'm glad that I was born in a Baptist home and I come from a long line of independent fundamental Baptists. I'm thankful for that. That, that's a good heritage. And God, I, I feel very blessed because of that. But that's spiritual. That's not physical, isn't it? And, but I'm, but I'm very thankful. I think what we have is better. Naboth. We all know the story of Naboth. The reason he could not sell that land to the king, and even though it was the king, because these things were supposed to stay in their family. And in 1 Kings 21, 3, Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. This wasn't just about Naboth. Okay, this land, this vineyard that he had, it had the names of his fathers on it too. And if it goes to Ahab, guess who Ahab's going to name it after? He's going to name it after Ahab. And you know, get if if I if I owned a town, okay, and it was and I named it after myself, which is exactly what I would do if I if I ever owned a town, okay, if I did that, you know, I want it to stay in my name. And if one of my descendants sold it. I'd be, I wouldn't be very happy. I mean, obviously I'd be dead. But that's not what I would want because guess what? Whoever buys this is going to do, they're going to change their, their name. And now I'm forgotten. Okay? And again, we laugh at that because we, we don't care about that stuff today. We've got something better that we're working towards, and that's the spiritual things. But this was not what the, the world they were living in back then. So they did. They had some customs and practices that are strange to us. So let's go ahead and keep on going. Verse 11. And we'll get to the spiritual application at the end, but it says, Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah my son be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt 
in her father's house. So I think Judah's starting to think, hey, this woman's bad luck. You know, and so he's like, you know, I don't want to give her to him just yet. Let's let him grow up. I'm afraid he's going to die uh, when he marries you. And I don't know if it's because he thought she was bad luck or he knew his, he was wicked too. But it says, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers to Timnath. He and his friends, Hira the Adolamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. So I don't know if Judah just again was scared and didn't want to give her to his son or if it was just an oversight and he forgot about it. But then it says, and Judah saw her, and he thought her to be a harlot because she had covered her face. What does that mean, folks? All right, don't let your wife off. <laughs> you know, we don't get to use this verse to prove women shouldn't wear masks. Okay, I'd love to do that tonight. I would love nothing more than to you know say all women that wear masks out there are whores. But um, understand, I right, understand that this was a different time a different culture. And, you know, the attire of a harlot does change throughout, from, throughout time and culture, okay? And back then, they covered their face. You know, today, um, well, we saw someone when we were in New Orleans. That there was no doubt about it. I mean, it was just like, it was, it was pretty freaky. And I don't, even, I don't even want to describe it. It was just, it was scary. And it was like, I mean, right in broad daylight. I'm just thinking, this is, this is a wicked, wicked place, <laughs> New Orleans is a scary place, but, um, but you know, we know it when we see it today, but I, I promise you, Tamar was not dressed like those women were in New Orleans, okay, but anyway, uh, you know, different times, different cultures, these things change, but anyway, because we see, too, where Rebecca put a veil over her face, you know, when she saw Isaac, so, you know, you can't, you, you got, you got to be careful with that stuff, as much as we'd love to, I'd love to use that verse like that, we can't do it, but anyway, verse 16 and he turned unto her, by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, What wilt thou give me, or wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet and thy bracelets and thy staff, which is in thine hand. And he gave it her and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. <clears throat> and she arose and went away. And laid by her veil from her and put on the garments of her widowhood. Now, here's the question we need to ask. So first, well, first off, this is just, this is terrible. All right. Judah is doing a terrible thing right here. One, he thinks he's going to harlot, but I understand he didn't know it was his daughter-in-law, but this is something, it's always been bad for, you know, a father and a son to have the same woman. That's why Reuben laid with, I believe he laid with Bill, his father's concubine, so she wouldn't be able to be with his father anymore because she was defiled. And so this was a very wicked thing, you know, in, in two ways. You know, one, I mean, obviously Judah, he violated one command or one, he did one great sin of, be, you know, laying with somebody his son had been with, but that was an ignorance. But he did that terrible sin in ignorance because he was doing another very bad sin of going into a harlot. And that was, that was a very bad thing to do. But why did she do this? Okay. Why would she purposely go and target Judah like this? Well, remember, back then, okay, women, they didn't really have anything but 
being a wife and a mother. So the, th- the thing is, while she's dwelling in her father's house, while she's staying there with her father, technically she belongs to Judah's family because she was the wife of his son, but she never had any kids. So no other man is going to be able to come along and marry her. He's not given her to Sheila, his son. So what does she have? She has nothing. So what does she do? She basically sets him up so she can get pregnant and at least now have a kid, and then he'll have to take care of her. And that's just, you know, that's terrible, but that was the world that they lived in back then. I think this was, uh, you know, obviously what she did was wrong, but, you know, this was a desperate woman, you know, trying to survive, wanting to be taken care of. Maybe her father was old and couldn't take very good care of her. You know, I'm not trying to make excuses. This is just, again, a lot of stuff we see in the Bible, there's just a lot of bad stuff, okay? This is why when we look, you know, when the Jews just thought they were so great, we look at these stories and like, man, they weren't very good at all. They were really bad. They needed a Messiah. But verse 20 says, And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend the Adolamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he found her not. And that was part of his problem. You know, he's good buddies with Canaanites, guys that are so wicked that, you know, these guys are so wicked, he doesn't even think anything of telling these guys, hey, can you go pay the harlot for me? He's not even embarrassed by it because, you know, Canaanites don't care about that stuff. But, you know, that's what happens when you run with that kind of crowd. So then he asked the men of that place, saying, where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and now it's not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt. Now, imagine a guy who is recently with a harlot in his mind, when he finds out his daughter-in-law is a harlot, commanding her to be burnt. Now, does that remind you of any of his descendants? Who are we thinking of? No, David. Isn't that what David did when he was told the parable of the man who had his a lamb stolen? Remember how he was? Man, that guy's gonna pay fourfold, you know. And then turns out, no, thou art the man, David. And so here we have the same situation where he's ready to kill this woman for, for being a whore, but then he finds out he's the guy. And then all of a sudden he gets merciful again. Don't you love Christians that are just so down on people? And just ruthless and condemning and just, I mean, picking out everybody's sins and just letting them have it. But boy, when they sin, they're the most gracious people in the world, aren't they? Forgiveness, love, you know, I mean, we just need to be more Christ-like. You know, blood of Christ cleanses from all sins. Yeah, when you're the one who needs forgiveness. And then you have another guy, he can just mess up, he can just make a mistake. And they're ready to throw him in hell. Isn't Isn't that interesting? The way these things work. If Judah was a man at all, you know what he'd have done? He'd be like, well, you already got the fire lit. I guess I'm going in with her. That's what he'd done if he'd had any character. And, you know, that's what people would do if they had any character that judge people with such harsh judgment and then they get busted. You know what? They would put that same judgment on themselves if they had any character at all. But let me tell you something. That's a red flag. People that are just over the top in condemnation when people do wrong, watch those people. They almost always have major skeletons 
in their closet that they don't want getting out. But and I don't you would think they would be the most merciful, wouldn't you? You would think the people that had the most to hide would just be showing mercy all the time. But that's, that's not what they do, is it? I, I, I think that's such a strange thing. And I do. OK, some of these people that are always like just condemning everybody. You know, what? I, I I've, I've literally before I just went and Googled their name. You know, I had one of these apps one time. You like look up mud shots and stuff. And I literally there's this guy who was constantly just attacking people. And I looked on there for his mugshot. Couldn't find it. Later, I actually, somebody else showed it to me. Turned out he did have a mugshot out there on him. Okay? I'm, and I'm telling you, when you go over the top condemning everybody, I'm Googling your name and looking to see if I can find a mugshot of you. Because I'm just automatically suspicious of self-righteous people like that. I, automat- I, I think you're hiding something. Okay? So if you want to put one over on me, be nice to people and be gracious and loving. And I might not think you have anything to hide. But you try to impress me with how spiritual you are by just being down at everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm looking you up, all right? Doing a background check on you or something. But anyway, where were we? So, yeah, uh, verse 25. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whom these are am I with child. And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet, the bracelets, and the staff? And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because I gave her not to Sheila my son, and he knew her again no more. So she ends up, you know, keeping from getting burnt. But notice, though, he couldn't keep her as a wife because it would have been wicked for him to continue being with her because of the fact that she was his son's wife. And so in verse 27, And it came to pass in the time of her travail, that behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread saying, this came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out and she said, how hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore, his name was called Perez and afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand and his name was called Zerah. Now, why did the Bible throw this detail in there? Well, because have we not been seeing the theme of kind of the younger brother prevailing over the older brother just throughout the Bible? And this is kind of another example. Now, technically, Pharaoh was the firstborn because he came all the way out, but he wasn't the one that got that scarlet cord on him like they would normally do, so they would know which one was first. He ends up kind of prevailing, and I think that's just another example that we see because Ultimately, this is about Jesus Christ. Adam, he was the first Adam. He was referred to as the Son of God. But Jesus is also the Son of God, the last Adam. And where, you know, through Adam, death came into the world. Through Jesus Christ, life came into the world. And so we see that with Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, uh, Esau and Jacob, and just on and on. And I think this is just another picture of that. God's doing that again. And so that ends this chapter. So here's the interesting thing, though, about the story and about this custom of the younger brother raising up seed is how, again, this chapter, it ends with the birth of Perez. And the next time we see this practice, it's in the story of his descendant, Boaz. And both of these guys are in the line of Christ. If you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you're reading the legal line of Christ, 
We're going to see Faraz in there, and we're going to see Boaz in there. We see both of those. We see uh, we see both of those guys in there. Okay, so now, what is the spiritual application for this? Because there's a lot. There, there's so many things in the Old Testament that are in the laws that clearly have spiritual application. This is one that you know, it, it, you know, I, I kind of struggled with for a long time, just kind of understanding what the spiritual application was. But the more I studied it, the more I got to think about it. The more clear it became to me, you know, what the spiritual significance of this was. So think about this. We as individuals, okay, because so what are they doing? Again, they're raising up seed for their dead brother. Why? So the dead brother would have an inheritance, okay? The dead brother wants an inheritance. He wants to have a name for himself. Why? So they can go on so their name will not be forgotten. Again, we don't think about that, you know, you know, that much today because we know so much about heaven and we're all looking forward to that. That was not the case back then. Okay. So the brother raises up seed to his dead brother. So his dead brother has an inheritance that will go on. So think about this. Okay. We as individuals, we have no ability to bring any life. To the world or even life to ourselves. Why? Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay. You know, we have our, you know, all our works are filthy wrecks. We have no ability to gain eternal life. Okay. Once you're dead, you're not bringing a descendant into this world, are you? It's impossible. You can't do it. All our works are filthy rags, and we will die, and we will be forgotten. But thankfully, Jesus, okay, you could say the younger brother of Adam, in a way, he has raised up an inheritance in our name, hasn't he? Jesus Christ, okay, because what, okay, again, if Jason has a child through Tommy's wife, okay, it's Tommy's child, but at the same time, it's not, either is it. And what is it that we have today? Today, as believers, we have righteousness, don't we? We're, we're accounted righteousness, aren't we? But where's our righteousness? It's filthy rags, isn't it? Okay, our, our righteousness, but yet we're still credited to us. But whose righteousness is it really? It's Jesus Christ. Okay. If we want to get really technical, that righteousness it's Jesus Christ's righteousness. Just like if we want to get really technical, that Tommy the Fourth that comes along, well, technically, it's Jason's son. Yet, it's in his name, and we have righteousness in our name. Our name, it is in the book of life. We all have an inheritance. The Bible says we are joint heirs with Christ, aren't we? Why? Because we now have an inheritance that's ours. It's ours, it's in our name, yet it wasn't through us. We didn't do anything for it, did we? There, there's no accomplishment of ours. And, you know, I'm thankful for that. You know, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And I think that's what God's trying to picture right here, is he, he's trying to show what Jesus Christ did. We have an inheritance because Jesus did something on our behalf. When I came into this world, I came into this world a sinner. I came into this, when I sinned, what uh, the Apostle Paul talked about was sin revived, and I died. I died spiritually because I willingly chose to sin. I have no ability now 
to bring eternal life to myself. I have no capability of doing that. But thankfully, I still have eternal life because Jesus did it for me. He did it on my behalf. I'm kind of like, you know, we're all like it. Just Adam, Adam, aren't we? We're just like him. We're sinners just like him. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, went and did something for us. He did something on our behalf and our name. And therefore, I have an inheritance today. I've got something that I can look forward to. I have something that's in my name, something that I didn't pay for. You know, isn't it nice when there's something in your name that you didn't pay for? You know, you, you know when you go to a hotel or something, and they do have a room reserved there in your name, and you, especially when you didn't pay for it. Okay? Now, we can all do that. We can, you know, get a room for ourselves. But, you know, we've all went and claimed stuff before that was in our name, maybe because we paid for it or maybe because somebody else paid for it. And we were able to go and we were able to redeem that possession because it was something that was in our name. And eternal life is something that we are able to, to have and to enjoy because it has been purchased in our name by Jesus Christ. And we have an inheritance. And I believe that's what that whole practice was a picture of spiritually. And, you know, we said, I would never want, and, you know, physically, I wouldn't want to do that practice, all right? Physically, I don't think we ought to be doing that today. But you know what? Spiritually, if you're saved today, this has all been done for us through Jesus Christ. And it's a great picture of salvation that if people would get a hold of, too. You know, if, if, think about it. If more people, if the work salvation crowd got a hold of this, maybe it would help them understand that, hey, no, you can't do anything to earn your salvation. Okay? Boaz's son, see, who was it? Boaz begat Obed. Okay? Obed, technic, you know, technically was Boaz's son, but actually it was that possession everything had, it was Malon's. Okay? Technically it was Boaz. But it, legally, it was Malon's son that he had. And so we all know the facts of that stuff. You say, but Malon didn't do anything. Malon didn't get Ruth pregnant. Malon was dead. He wasn't capable of doing that. But he still got credit for it. And we need to realize that's what we are spiritually. We're dead. We cannot bring life to ourselves. We cannot, we cannot have eternal life on our own. Somebody's got to do it for us in our name in Jesus Christ. He did all that for us. And so what a wonderful picture that is. And so when you read Genesis chapter 38, um, you know, let's, let's get more out of that chapter than birth control. All right. You know, this is, you know, there's some real good spiritual truths there that, that are very important. And, uh, and, and there, there's no way it's a coincidence. That's where Pharaoh's came from. And we see that same practice in the book of Ruth with Boaz. And, and these two happen to be in the line of Christ. There's, there's a reason God wants us paying extra attention to this, to us, very strange practice, because there's a very spiritual application there that we all get. I mean, do you all get that application right there? All right. Do you all, uh, hopefully you all get that. Hopefully I explained it good, but I think that's pretty clear what it's trying to show us. And, and we, and we get it. We understand it because that's exactly what our salvation is to us. Something that was done for us. Not something that we did, something that was done for us because we were not capable of doing it because of our, we were dead spiritually. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, 
we thank you so much for just this amazing book that we have and just uh, the truths, Lord, that Lord, I, this is just another example of proof that this book is your word. Man never could have come up with anything like this. And I just thank you, Lord, that we have uh, a book divinely inspired and preserved by you. And dear Lord, I pray you'll help us to uh, learn from these things and help us never get puffed up and proud of what we have. Lord, help us to always remember it was it, technically it's, it, it's all you. You just did it on our behalf and we thank you for it. In your name we pray. Amen.